Dear Father, we do thank you for the gift of your Son, your Son whom you loved, but whom you loved us enough to send him uh, to stand in our place and to receive our penalty, our punishment for sin. Your sinless Son who went to the uh, who went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter. We thank you that uh, you have provided so abundantly for us in the area of salvation and uh, in all things. We do thank you for your promises, not only to us, but to Abraham. These exemplary promises where we get to learn something about your nature and your character and your faithfulness, uh, especially towards your promises. So as we study the passage out this morning, uh, we ask that we would be given particular grace to understand uh, just who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be in your word. We do praise you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We've come to one of the most poignant passages in all of the Old Testament, and this is the sacrifice of Isaac. This has been a long time coming ever since God first introduced us to Abraham but we get the distinct understanding that Abraham was unaware that this was coming in the future. This was not part of what God had revealed to him at that time. And that's kind of an important principle to understand as we're studying our Bibles, that not everybody at all times in history who have been audiences to God's word have had the entire complete canon in their hands. In fact, Abraham had next to nothing. He had what was revealed to him by God directly and Perhaps uh, the stories of the uh, prior patriarchs, either in written form or perhaps just orally. He knew this God and he was coming to know this God better, but he was coming to know him better through personal interaction with him and God's direct revelation to him. But Abraham knew nothing of the nation of Israel. Abraham knew nothing of the coming person of Jesus Christ. And we're very tempted when we enter into this passage because it is a type of the coming Christ to immediately jump from the text into the New Testament and ignore everything about what Abraham or what this meant to Abraham. Remembering also that when this was first recorded, it was not first recorded for the audience of the church. It was first recorded for the audience of Israel in the Exodus about to enter this land that God had promised for them. Now, that is not to say that this is not for us. This absolutely is for us. It has been recorded for our understanding so that we could understand God better. But this event occurred to Abraham, and it was written down and delivered first to Israel, and it has been preserved for our benefit as well. So we want to keep that in mind as we go through the passage this morning and not try to jump immediately to application, but to understand what is going on in this passage. To keep on the forefront of our minds as we go through the text, these first 10 verses in this important chapter, this is a climactic event in the life of Abraham, revealing the maturity of faith which God has wrought in Abraham, his own faithfulness, God's own faithfulness to his promises, and the trust that we should have in him, in his word. This also reveals some early foreshadowing of the final sacrifice which God will offer in his son for the forgiveness of sin, through which he will restore his blessing and his presence to mankind. You'll remember where we are in our chiasm of Isaac. We are nearing the center point. We're nearing the point where he is introduced to and married to the mother of the covenant people, Rebekah. But here we see a test of faith, a trial of faith, risking it all for the covenant. In this passage, Abraham is the primary focus, not Isaac. And the test is, does Abraham trust God or does he trust what he sees in front of him? Does he trust the things that he holds in his hands or does he trust the word and the promise of the one who gave them? This is an important lesson for all of us to learn, but it was a very important lesson in the establishment of this covenant people. They are going to have a covenant that they hold on to through all of their history. And this covenant won't be revealed to every generation 
they won't see all the, all the clauses and aspects of this covenant come into fruition. In fact, Hebrews tells us that everyone to whom these promises were originally given died without seeing any of them come to pass. It is very important for our faith not to be placed in the things that we receive, but in the one who gives them. For our faith to be placed in God. And that is what we see with Abraham. As we see one of the greatest tests of his faith and one of his greatest triumphs of faith as well. Where he is willing to trust God because God has proven himself trustworthy. And Abraham is no longer going to take it upon himself to try to work God's promises out himself, but he is going to let God be the giver and Abraham not be the taker. And so we begin with the testing of Abraham. Some translations like to say the uh, tempting of Abraham here. Now it has come about after these things that God tempted Abraham. The authorized version, the King James Version, likes to use this word. In its day, it was fine, but it's somewhat an arcane word now that has taken on a different meaning. For example, when we jump into James and we see that God does not tempt anyone, we must understand that James defines what temptation is for us here as well. He himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted as he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The thing that God is asking Abraham to do here is not something that tempts his desires. This is something that goes very contrary to his desires. This is not something that Abraham would desire to do on his own, to go and sacrifice his son, but it goes against every fiber of his being to do this. This is a test in a very similar way to the very first time we see God and Abraham interacting, where the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and so you shall be a blessing. Two commands were given to him here and two very difficult commands, to leave everything behind, to separate himself from the world in which he was stable. He had a father who appears to be of some sort of royal line or at least recognition in the world around him. They were living in Ur and then they're living in Haran and many of the things in Haran are named after them. This was an important family that he was leaving behind to join a new family or to become a new family. A family carved out of the nations of the world and set aside for God's purposes. God is calling Abraham to separate himself from the world for his purposes. This is a tall order. And Abraham doesn't do very well at the beginning. And we see him continuing to stumble throughout his walk, just as all of us continue to stumble throughout our walk of coming to know the Lord better. But generally, just as is the case for Abraham, as we come to know God better, God is able to grow us up in our faith, to mature us. And he's doing that with Abraham. So while the original promise that is given to Abraham depends on separating to God and mediating a blessing to his neighbors, a new test is going to be given to Abraham. And this is not a covenantal test, but this is a personal test that is given to Abraham. The covenant does not depend on it. The promises do not depend on it, but Abraham is proved by it. Abraham does not always pass his tests when he was told to leave his relatives in his fatherland, he takes Lot with him, a member of his father's household, not belonging to Abraham, but he adopts him as if he were his own and particularly as if he were his own heir. God tells him to go to the land which he will show him, and he does that, but he doesn't stay. He goes down to the Negev, and in the Negev he faces troubles of provision. There's a drought. And so he keeps going down into Egypt where God had not sent him. God had promised to protect him and he sells his own wife for the protection of his life in Egypt. God promised to provide an heir, but Abraham assumes a different heir, Lot. God promised to provide an heir specifically from the person of Abraham Abraham takes it into his own hands to fulfill this promise for God. 
and he takes a concubine in Hagar. Actually, more than a concubine, he takes a second wife in Hagar and produces an heir, Ishmael, but not the heir of the covenant, not the one who God intended to give this covenant to. God rejects Ishmael for a promise, and Abraham argues with him. Interestingly enough, as we get into the passage this morning, in a much more incendiary request that God has for Abraham, Abraham speaks not a word of protest. This is very different from the Abraham that we know already. The Abraham who pleads to save Lot from destruction, who pleads to save Ishmael from God's wrath. Here, he simply accepts God's word. But in 20, remember that God had promised that the seed would come specifically through the body of Sarah as well, not just Abraham. And then he once again trades her for his own safety. That's not to say that Abraham has not passed tests as well. He's not as rotten as people get. But we see that he was a very worldly man who was learning and coming to know this God who has a righteous standard that was foreign to Abraham. Abraham is essentially learning to live in reality, and that reality is revealed by God. Abraham does indeed leave his homeland when God tells him to. Abraham goes where God tells him to, at least initially. Abraham trusts God's gift of land. In Genesis 13, God gives him all the land, and he believes it enough that he starts divvying up the land among his proposed heir, Lot. Abraham blesses those around him. In Genesis 14, you'll remember this, the, the world war, the first world war, with uh, all the kings of the east coming and invading the promised land. He saves all the, the five cities of the valley of Sidim, and then he goes and he blesses Melchizedek. Abraham trusts God's promise of a seed in Genesis 15, and we see in 6 that this, this uh, justified Abraham. Abraham obeys concerning the sign of circumcision, and we see him beginning to obey more immediately at this juncture. Abraham blesses his visitors when three uh, angels or three men come to visit him in Genesis 18. Abraham obeys God when God tells him to send away his first son, Ishmael. This would not be an easy test to pass, but he does. And though it's not easy, he at least still had one son, and that son was the son of the promise. But we know that Abraham loved Ishmael just as he loved Isaac. But God had not chosen Ishmael to receive the inheritance from Abraham. However, this test is much more difficult to send away his last son, the son of the covenant, and not just to send him away into another land, but to end his life. This is an incredible test, one that requires an incredible dose of faith and one that is not given to all believers. This was something that had its time in history, had its time in progressive revelation, this is not a command that God gives to believers today. But this was something that occurred at the right time so that we could look back into history and recognize who God is and recognize what faith is. In the end of uh, verse 20, or verse 1, it says, uh, As God came and tested Abraham, that God said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, Here I am. Abraham stands there ready to do what God says, just as uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. This is the proper response of a prophet. And we know from Genesis 20 that Abraham is indeed a prophet. And in fact, we'll see him doing what many prophets will be called to do in the future, acting out something that God does so that he can understand it more tangibly, so that we can see it and understand it more tangibly. But this is ultimately not something that Abraham will fulfill, but that Abraham will prophesy in action. Notice as well, and remember that Abraham did not have the complete canon. Abraham did not even have what Israel in the Exodus had, this statement prefacing the entire event 
that this is a test. That this is a test means there's passing and failing. That God is going to be evaluating him on some basis. Here, Abraham has merely the command from God, go and do this thing. And the opportunity or the option to choose to do it by his own volition or to refuse. God's command is weighty. God says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This is probably one of the best written sections of Genesis since Genesis 11 as well. You remember I marveled at Moses' literary skill in presenting the events of Babel. Here is very similar, a different kind of marvel that we might see. But as short as this section is, it tiptoes forward. It moves at a snail's pace, even though it's only 10 verses. And in each word, the knife is plunged deeper and turned sharper. God says, take your son. He's told Abraham before to do something with his son, and it wasn't so pretty. It was sending him away into the wilderness, giving him away to his mother. Now God says to him, take your son. Not just any son, your only son. Ishmael's still alive. Ishmael's still a son. This is not only in the sense of only having been born, but the only son, a unique son, the son of the covenant. Take that unique son. Remember back in Genesis 17, 18 through 19 at a reconfirmation of the covenant that Abraham had said to God, somewhat in protest, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Isaac was a unique son of Abraham in the sense that this is the seed son, the one who receives the promise, the one who has been anticipated from Eve through Noah, now through Abraham. He's not the ultimate seed son, but he is the one that stands in that very important line that will lead to the Savior. And God does regard Ishmael. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. This is a comfort to Abraham because he sees that Ishmael will have a future. Ishmael, by the unique promise of God, not as part of the covenant, because God says, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Ishmael is cut off from this covenant. It does not belong to him, but God gives him a different promise. Both of his sons now have promise, but God calls this one, whom Abraham is to take, the unique son, the son of the promise, the son of the covenant. And he twists the knife a little harder the one whom you love. We've seen that Abraham loves Ishmael. This doesn't really distinguish Isaac from his brother, but this emphasizes the paternal relationship that he has with his son. This is the first time in scripture that we see the word love. At this point in Genesis, you start to get the, the impression that we've seen most of the words and they're all being recycled and will be for the rest of scripture, but this 22 chapters into the Bible is the first time that we see love. And notice this isn't love between a husband and a wife. Love didn't arrive with Adam and Eve, so it was present in their relationship. That's not when God chose to reveal what love is. Love wasn't even revealed when Adam and Eve had their first child or their second child or their third child. Love wasn't revealed with Noah. Love wasn't revealed even when we first saw Abraham. The first love that we see is paternal love, love between a father and a son. This is always going to be God's demonstration of what true love is. It's not infatuation. It's not that fancy foreign word amour. 
This is the love that God has for his own son. In John 3.16, this is the first time that we see love mentioned in the Gospel of John. Notice the similarity, but also the difference. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only unique son, the ultimate son of the covenant promise, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is teaching us something about the love of a father for his son in Genesis 22. And the difficulty, the challenge, the pain of giving that up. He is teaching Abraham something about his own heart. God is revealing to his chosen people what love is. In John 5.20, the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. As we keep going in Genesis 22, we'll notice that Abraham is not fully aware of how God is going to fulfill his word, but he trusts that he will. Abraham has not been shown all the things that God is doing. Abraham doesn't have the information to share with Isaac either. And even the information that he does have, he doesn't share it all with Isaac. But Jesus from a young age understood what his mission on earth was. God revealed this to him and he understood that his role, his position, was to be crushed on our behalf that God would put on him the weight of the sin of the world. Because the Father loves the Son, and he shows him all the things that he himself is doing. Usually when we're trying to find a passage on love, we call 1 Corinthians 13 the greatest passage on love, and I vehemently disagree. 1 John 4, 7 through 10 is the greatest passage on love in all of Scripture. John calls his audience beloved, the objects of love. Let us love one another, for love is from God. God is the source of love. Love cannot be manifest apart from him because he is the definition of what it is. He is the source of love. Everyone who loves is born of God. One requirement to be able to love the way that God loves is that you be of his family, having been born again. Not only that, but he's matured in God as well. He's not just crossed from death to life, but he's come to see that life face to face and he understands it and he knows it. This is why we see love occurring at the end of the record with Abraham and not the beginning. Because as God is demonstrating Abraham's maturity, he is revealing something that requires maturity, requires an intimate knowledge of who God is, to see that the love of God is not like the love of the world. It is completely different. The one who does not love does not know God. Does not say that the one who does not love God is not born of God. John is very careful about his words here. Christians can be very unloving. And it demonstrates immaturity, not lack of salvation. But God himself is love. God is revealing himself to Abraham by demonstrating love to him. By this, the love of God was manifested among us that God has sent his only begotten son, his only unique son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to stand in our place as a substitute, to absorb the righteous wrath of God so that we do not have to. A weight that we could not bear, he put on his shoulders. God is reminding Abraham just how much he loves his son so that we, generations later, might look at this passage and realize how much God loved his son and how much then he loved us in his willingness to sacrifice his son, seeing here how much Abraham loved God in his willingness to sacrifice his own son. First John 4 continues on, and it will 
talk about the mutual love of God, where we love God and God loves us, and this is our fellowship with him. Abraham is enjoying fellowship with God here. And to make it as specific as possible, he ends this climax with Isaac. Now remember, Isaac's name means laughter. I don't think this command is going to bring that same laughter that Isaac brought initially. Isaac came into the world with laughter, and God is now asking Abraham to take him out of this world. He's also commanding him not to do this in Beersheba, but to go to another land. This almost perfectly parallels the original promise and command that God had given to Abraham. He tells him, take now, and he tells him what to take with him. And then he says, go to the land, and it's a land that he is going to tell him about, that he is going to reveal to him. As Abraham sets off, he does not know initially where he's going. God calls it the land of Moriah. As we'll come to see, that's not very clear. There's not a specific hill named Moriah that he knew of, but a hill that became named Moriah because God revealed that hill to him. This phrase uh, in the Hebrew, lekhalak, is only found one other time in all of Scripture. And that's in Genesis 12.1. Specifically the command not just to go, but to get yourself. Get yourself from your country. Here he says, get yourself to the land of Moriah. Moriah, it's debated what exactly it means. Some foreign translations, the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch, for example, has translated this as the Amorites. We say to the land of the Amorites. But the early rabbis disagree strongly on this and say that that's not what this is saying. In fact, it probably comes from the word myrrh, the incense offering, the incense of worship. Get yourself to the land of worship. We'll notice that as Abraham arrives there, he tells his servants that he and his son are going to worship. And then they'll return. This also comes from the word or may have to do with the word for reveal. God is going to reveal something there. In fact, you see that I-A-H at the end of this, Yah, that's the name of God. That God is going to reveal something there. And the Hebrew rabbis prefer the, the etymology of teach, that God is going to teach something there. Either one of these interpretations would be fine. I'm not sure which one is, is right, and it seems to me that nobody's sure of which one is right. But this is a place of worship, a place where God reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham, when he arrives, is going to see this place, this land of Moriah, from a distance. And wouldn't you know, about six months ago, I, I did a little photo shoot for you guys. I took a picture looking at Moriah from a distance from the south, thinking I would get to this passage a little faster than I did. But there's me from the south view of Jerusalem looking up at Mount Moriah. If we zoom in a little bit further, you get to see maybe a little better what this hill is. If we zoom in a lot, you get to see exactly what Mount Moriah is. Mount Moriah is the temple mount. Mount Moriah is the place where God would place his temple. Mount Moriah is the place where Israel, for generation after generation after generation, would make atonement for their sins by the sacrifice of substitutionary animals as they waited for the final sacrifice that God had promised. 2 Chronicles 3.1 tells us Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. <clears throat> Abraham had no idea what this hill would be. Abraham had only seen this place once before. It was the valley beneath Mount Moriah, the valley of Jehoshaphat, where he met Melchizedek and blessed Melchizedek. He had no idea that 
his descendant son David would sit on his throne and build his house on the foothill beneath Mount Moriah, or that the son of that king would build a house for God on the hill above it on Mount Moriah. He had no idea that God intended to make this the highest hill in all of the world when he would finally bring about all of his promises in the covenant and elevate the hill of God, the mountain of God, Mount Zion, above all the rest of the hills in the world. Perhaps he had no idea even that God would offer the final sacrifice on this very hill, outside the city walls, but on Mount Moriah at Calvary, where Christ was crucified, where Christ paid the price for our sins, where God put his own son on the cross and did not spare him as he spared Abraham's son. Abraham was told here to offer his son as a burnt offering. This would be a long trip, probably a long, quiet, and solemn trip. I'm just conjecturing here, but I don't think Abraham was doing a lot of talking in the three days that it took to get there. We see Isaac asking questions, questions that he obviously has not received an answer to. Abraham has not offered Isaac a reason why they're going. Yes, this is the quietude of faith, but at the same time, we see the pain. But Abraham didn't argue. He didn't even hesitate. Just as we've seen in all the other instances where faith took immediate action, Abraham doesn't lazily wake up the next day to prepare for the journey. Abraham arose early. Remember Abimelech, when he was threatened with death, if he did not return Abraham's wife Sarah to him, rose early in the morning and told his generals, and then he went and spoke to Abraham. Remember that Abraham rose early in the morning to see the destruction of Sodom. Abraham here again rises early in the morning, wasting no time obeying God's command. And just as Noah, if you remember back to Noah, where we see all of these actions that Noah's doing, it's just verb after verb after verb after verb, but he speaks not one word. Until finally we just see a, a subtle summary of Noah. He did all the things that God told him to do. Here we see Abraham rising early, saddling his donkey, taking two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Remember, I said this is very carefully written. Moses, despite having written some of the longest books in the Bible, is an expert at micro uh, narrative. He is able to make you take your time reading, and here he does that by stacking these verbs one after another, and you get the sense of the monotony of Abraham's morning as they're about to leave and the quiet work that he's going about doing in quiet obedience to God's command. But he's leaving no T uncrossed, no I undotted. He's preparing all things so that when he gets there, there's not going to be an option not to do it because he didn't bring the wood and there's no wood there to do it. He's preparing all these things ahead of time so that obedience can be complete. And then on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. That means that at a certain point in his journey, on the third day, God revealed to Abraham, that's the place. These three days of walking and Abraham has finally arrived at the place where he sees the mountain where he fully expects to have to kill his own son. This was a 50-mile journey from Beersheba all the way up to Jerusalem, or what would one day become Jerusalem, to the valley of the Jebusites. Whether or not they're there at this time, we have no indication. We know that Melchizedek was there at one point. The morning that he was told that this is the place where he will sacrifice his son would have been the morning that they either stayed in Bethlehem or walked through Bethlehem the place where the final sacrificial lamb will come.
But we also note that however this might focus on Abraham and Abraham's faith, Isaac is also perfectly complicit in Abraham's obedience. Isaac obeys with him, quietly, thoughtfully. In verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. There's a lot of debate over how old Isaac was at this time. Some of the earliest uh, suppositions are that he was about 10 years old. We know that he's at least older than three years old, because last time we saw him at his weaning, he was about three years old. Some things have happened since then, so they assume about 10 years old, not only because he's able to ask some intelligent questions. However, I have a three-year-old nephew who's also able to ask some similarly intelligent questions that always surprise me. Uh, but he's able to carry the weight of all the wood for the burnt offering on his back as well. So people would put this at about 10 years old at the earliest, but at the latest, he was 37 years old. This is a pretty wide gap, and we just simply do not know how old he was. What we know about the timeline here is that it came somewhere between the birth of Isaac and the death of his mother. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, which means Sarah was 90. And in the next section, we'll see that Sarah lives 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. This does appear to be closer to the death of Sarah based on the narrative clues and all of the passages that say after these things, after these things, but one that came before this that said, and many days after this. One that implies a longer period of time than we're used to in the text. Isaac was probably much closer to 37 than he was to 10. Isaac was a young man. Isaac may even have been near the age of Christ when Christ was offered for our sins. What we don't realize in the English text, in any English text that I was able to find, is that the word that God uses for his servants is the exact same word that he uses for his son. He says to his Na'arim, I and the Na'arim will go, or the Na'ar will go to the land over there. This also has something to do with the humility of Isaac, I think. That he's not distinguished or set above these servants in this passage. He's placed in the same level by the name chosen for him here as a servant. Just as, once again, Christ will take on the form of a bondservant in order to be obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Abraham says something else that's very intriguing here. He says, I and the lad will go. First person, plural, the we in English. And then he says, we will worship. He expects to do this together in collaboration. And then he says, we will return to you. He tells these servants that came with him that he and his son will go and he and his son will come back. This does reveal something to us about the faith of Abraham. He so completely trusts the promise of God. And as we'll see in verse 10, he so completely anticipates his own obedience to God. He is determined to obey. Yet he reckons that God will even raise Isaac from the dead in order to satisfy his end of the promise. We don't learn this until the church age. Israel didn't have this explanation in the Old Testament. But under the divine inspiration of God, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews told us what Abraham was thinking. He writes that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that locates us in this passage, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promise was offered up, or has, was offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. The author of Hebrews recognizes Abraham's struggle here. This was the one, the only one, through whom God could fulfill his promises because he had narrowed it down, not just through Abraham, not just through Sarah, but through Isaac. 
he could no less remove himself from the equation than he could remove Isaac. But he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now this, uh, this last comment, as a type, gives us permission to see Christ in Isaac. Without it, we are drawing connections where connections may not be drawn. But this draws a direct line back to this passage and says, this is typological. This was something that God revealed early on so that when we see Christ, we would recognize it. Abraham believed without any revelation alluding to the fact, without any demonstration that God is able to raise people from the dead. He's seen God do some amazing things. Technically, he has already brought Isaac from the dead once. Sarah's womb, as Romans 4 will tell us, was dead. God, to bring life through it, had to bring it back to life. To restore functionality where there was none. Isaac is already a miracle child who has been brought by the miracle of God from death to life. At this point, Abraham has no qualm about God's power, God's ability to do this thing. Notice as well, and this is somewhat of an aside or a bird trail here, but the verses that come immediately before this, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. The author of Hebrews has Genesis 22 on his mind. And Abraham, at one point in that passage, stood at a distance and looked at the very city which Israel would be given. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, looking back at Genesis 12, drawing these passages together in the New Testament, they would have had an opportunity to return. In other words, if Abraham wanted to go back to Haran where he was a noble, he could have. When he sends his own uh, servant back to collect a wife for Isaac, he sends it to his own people in Haran. He knows where they are. In fact, we'll see at the end of this chapter, chapter 22, that he's even receiving word from them about uh, those who have been born into that line. But as it is, they desire a better country. A better country because it's the object of God's promise. That is a heavenly one. The ultimate Jerusalem, the one on this earth, is just a type of the promise of God. The new Jerusalem is the ultimate goal. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham is standing in the very place where God will reveal the new Jerusalem to them where God will place his type of the coming new Jerusalem so that his people, Israel, might learn to serve him in it. What does he do then? Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. They're leaving the donkeys behind. They're leaving the servants behind. And Isaac is going to bear his cross to the place where he is sacrificed. Not only this, but Abraham takes the instruments of execution with him. He takes the fire and he takes the knife in his own hand. And then the two of them walk on together. This is repeated here, repeated, of course, for emphasis. Isaac is just as complicit in obedience as Abraham is. The focus is Abraham, but Isaac is not protesting either. Once again, we have in here the type as Hebrews tells us, of God the Father and Christ the Son. Just as we saw in making the covenant, when there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. When God the Father and Christ the Son walked between the pieces of the covenant and made this covenant together with Abraham and his descendants as the beneficiaries. Here we see the same thing, father and son walking together for the sake of the covenant as a type so that we might better understand who God is as the father to the Messiah.
Isaiah 53, we clearly understand to be about the Messiah. Isaac, as a type of the Messiah, bears striking resemblance to this passage as well. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Isaac does speak, but he makes no protest, just as Jesus, as he is going to the cross, speaks, but makes no protest. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. See, the moment that Abraham determined to obey God in this matter, Isaac was as good as dead. Apart from God's intervention, Isaac would be sacrificed. Just as Christ was considered by that generation cut off from the land of the living, what his generation did not anticipate, what many of them did not anticipate, was that God had the power over death and would resurrect his son. He went to this death for the transgression of his people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was the rich man, was with a rich man in his death. That does not correspond with uh, Isaac, but it does with Christ. Because he had done no violence, Ishmael was or uh, Isaac was completely innocent, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering was a burnt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Ultimately, this has its fulfillment in Christ. Isaac came before this, and as Isaiah is writing this, and as those receive it, I wonder if it came to their mind, this offering of the only unique son of Abraham the only time they'd ever seen anything quite like this in history. And now with the fullness of the canon, with the completeness of God's revelation to us in his word, we see clearly his son, whom he anticipated through all time in history, standing in our place, bearing our sin, having the weight of the world placed on his shoulders, and walking willingly and silently to his death. The two of them walked on together. Our divine institutions are wrapped up in this as well. We see the divine institution of co-laboring, not just one man with another man, as we saw with Adam and Eve working together, but primarily in the divine institution of labor. Remember, that wasn't just to come and work for no reason, but God gave us specific tasks in the garden to mimic the things that he had done. God first plants a garden and shows Adam that planting of a garden, and then he says, now you go do it. This wasn't because God needed Adam to plant a garden, to tend a garden, to keep a garden. God could have done that on his own. But to teach Adam about who he is. In the same way here, we have Abraham co-laboring with God, obeying what God tells him to do so that he might understand God better. And we have Isaac collaborating with him in this obedience, just as God the Father and Christ the Son will collaborate in obedience to bring about ultimate salvation. We also have the divine institution of family tied in here. Isaac didn't get this way on his own. Abraham had been training up his child, just as God had told him that he was not sparing him the sight of Sodom, because Abraham was going to be the father of a nation and he had a responsibility to train up his children. Abraham is training up his child so that when Isaac is aware that this was a command from God, he silently and deliberately obeys. He goes along with Abraham, even to his own death. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, this is interesting as well. Again, it emphasizes the relationship between the two as father and son. 
in a way that is redundant, unnecessary unless it is making a point. Just like in Genesis 16, when God continually over and over and over and over again referred to Sarah as Abraham's wife. He could hardly mention her name without reminding Abraham, this one is your wife. So here in the text, we hardly have a name mentioned without being reminded of the father-son relationship between the two. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Abraham said, etc., etc., God will provide my son. What was the question, though? He said, here I am, my son, and Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood. Behold the instruments for performing this burnt offering. But the most important piece appears to be missing. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What are we going to sacrifice on this wood? Remember when I said Abraham doesn't tell him everything that he knows. But he doesn't speak a single deceptive word to him either. Because Abraham fully understands that God will provide and believes that he has provided. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now the Hebrew here is fascinating. And without context, it would be impossible to translate. Because there's so much flexibility in these words. In the context, it is clear. Abraham is telling his son not to worry because God is a provider. God can be trusted to provide. Notice the maturity of faith that is far different from Adam and Eve's. As Satan's temptation is to trust the benevolence of God and the provision of God. Abraham does not do that. He trusts to such a degree that God will provide. He believes he will sacrifice his son and that God will raise him from the dead. This is God's provision. But in the words themselves, we says, it says, God, looking to himself, goat, burnt offering, my son. The only verb here is looking to himself, which is translated into the English as provide for himself. But often in Hebrew, nouns and adjectives are placed up next to each other and you supply an is or a be. And so these words by themselves without context could say, God will look to himself as a burnt offering, my son. Or God will look or will provide a burnt offering, who is my son. In the context, that is not what this means. But the words are there, and they're on the page, and we see God's thumbprint on this passage, understanding fully the ultimate sacrifice of his own son, that God will provide it, and that it will even be his own son as a burnt offering. Finally, we see Abraham proven. God lets him get all the way up to the point of raising his hand to strike before he will stop him. And now I know you've read the coming chapters. If you've been reading the uh, Bible reading this uh, week, then I know you've read this chapter recently, but we all know what happens next. God is going to stop his hand. God is going to provide a substitute, someone else to the stand in the place of Isaac. Because Isaac is not the ultimate seed son. Isaac is the next in the line leading to the Messiah. Isaac's death would not atone for anyone's sin. Because Isaac needs a savior. God is going to provide and he is going to place someone else in his place. But they came to the place, Abraham and Isaac, which God had told them. This puts it in the context, of course, of obedience. And then Abraham, once again, performs a litany of verbs without a single word. Abraham built the altar there. He arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar atop the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. This was the ultimate obedience. Abraham doing everything without protest that God had asked him to do. I might point out another possible illusion here in the text. Abraham has built five altars in the land of Israel. 
This is the last one that he builds. We are not told of any more after this. We do not see Abraham sacrificing any more after this. In his own lifetime, perhaps he did. Probably he did. But Moses has chosen, under the inspiration of God, to cease recording it here. Because this is a picture of the final sacrifice. When this prophetic event is fulfilled, no other sacrifice can ever stand in its place. There is no more anticipation. There is only looking back to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now remember, this has application to three different parties. Immediately in its day, it applied to Abraham. God was using what we would call online interaction, one-on-one, face-to-face, in real time, to teach Abraham. Later, it would be recorded and delivered to Israel, and it would be preserved for us. So the primary audience of this event is clearly Abraham. And what does he learn from this event? Abraham is learning to trust God, especially what we'll see in verse 11. God is going to provide in a way that he did not anticipate. Abraham is learning to trust God as the promise maker, not trying to grab, take, or keep for himself. He doesn't say, no, God, you promised me a son, and here I have him. We're done. Thanks very much. He trusts God as the giver. God will give what he has promised. This, for Abraham, is a proof of his own faith. James 2.24 will tell us that Abraham was proved by this, proved publicly he was justified in the face of men by this activity. But also, this is proof of God's faithfulness and provision to Abraham. He sees that God is going to keep his word, God is going to keep his promise, and God is going to provide. This also corresponds to Israel, as this was originally written, the book of Genesis was written for Israel to teach them something as they entered into the land of Israel. Israel has just come out of Egypt. They are in the Exodus. They are wandering for their faithless actions, culminating in Numbers 14, where that generation is barred from the promised land. And another generation is being prepared to enter. The story is presented to Israel for their instruction and for their hope. It teaches them something about faith and faithfulness. And as they now have a covenant that they need to participate in, they're not just the beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant, but they are also responsible for the Mosaic covenant. They learn something about faithfulness to God. But they also have hope in the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. They see that in all of these events leading up through Abraham, in all of Abraham's failures, God is still faithful to his covenant. God is still the provider, and God will still keep that promise. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their God, who is faithful to his promises. God does provide, and this is a shadow of God's provision of substitutionary sacrifices seen on the heels of the giving of the law of God's provision of atonement in the law. God had just delivered to Israel the law of Moses, if not months before, at least years before. This was a brand new thing for them, the law of Moses. Of course, the law of Moses prohibits human sacrifice. Abraham had no specific revelation. The revelation that Abraham had from God was go and sacrifice your son. Again, it's prefaced when it's delivered to Israel that this is a test for Abraham. This might not yet attack their sensitivities towards human sacrifice, but it should. And God has an answer for that. He is going to supply a substitute. This does apply to us as well. It did not happen to us. It was not written to us, but it was written for us. We are the tertiary recipients of this event, beneficiaries of the preservation of Scripture. Now in the completed canon, where we get to see that this is a type, a type of the one to come, so that we can know most fully what God had in his mind as he was teaching Abraham and training Israel. Isaac and Abraham serve as a type of the final sacrifice which Christ has provided at Calvary. We see God's provision of a substitute sacrifice here. 
we see a demonstration of God's love for his son and an example of his incredible love for his people. We see the obedience of Christ in what we have, in whom we have our life, and his willingness to die an excruciating death out of obedience to God and love for the world. We have hope of our resurrection in Christ. For God's promises are not overcome by death, but he has overcome death for us. I think Philippians 2, 5 through 8 is one of the best passages that we can look at after seeing Isaac and Abraham. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, or Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in conclusion this morning, this is a climactic event in the life of Abraham, revealing the maturity of faith which God has wrought in Abraham, his own faithfulness to his promises, and the trust we should have in him. This it also reveals some early foreshadowing of the final sacrifice which God will offer in his son for the forgiveness of sin, through which he will restore his blessing and presence to mankind. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. Though we see the faith of Abraham, the patriarch, the one through whom you will bring this blessing of promise, this Messiah, we also see your faithfulness towards him, towards Israel, and towards us in providing that final sacrifice to your son, Jesus Christ. We do praise you for this salvation, this so great salvation. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.